Hi, my name is Brianna Hawk. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 127, 1 through 5. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame, where he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Austin. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 3, 9-17 through 17 in the Message Translation. Or, to put it another way, you are God's house. Using the gift God gave me as a good architect, I designed blueprints. Apollos is putting up the walls. Let each carpenter who comes on the job take care to build on the foundation. Remember, there is only one foundation, the one already laid, That's Jesus Christ. Take particular care in picking out your building materials. Eventually, there's going to be an an inspection. If you use cheap or inferior materials, you'll be found out. The inspection will be thorough and rigorous. You won't get by with a thing. If If your work passes inspection, fine. If it doesn't, your part of the building will be torn out and started over. But you won't be torn out. You'll survive, but just barely. You realize, don't you, that you are the temple of God, and God himself is present in you. No one will get by with vandalizing God's temple, and you can be sure of that. God's temple is sacred, and you, remember, are the temple. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Chris. Please stand for the gospel reading. Found in Luke thirteen six through 9. Then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. The gardener answered, Sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I've talked about this a few times, but it it was January of 1996 when I arrived late at night into the Tulsa International Airport in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you didn't know there was an international airport there, now you do. I was there because I was arriving as a freshman at Oral Roberts University, but the trouble was it was Sunday night uh, on the second week or first week or so of January, and unbeknownst to me, I'd already missed spring orientation. Now, some of you know this, but it's hard enough to sort of get connected, you know, in college when you go uh, in the spring instead of at the fall, but it's even harder when you miss orientation. And so I arrived and they said, well, we don't really know where to put you or where your dorm's going to be, so here's a, a spare mattress on a dark hallway floor somewhere. And no, I wasn't in a floor, it was in a room, you know. And I spent the, the night there and then later on the next morning they helped sort it out. 
And I had, I had lived in the States previously with my parents and my older sister. We had lived in Portland, Oregon for three years in 88 to 91. But this time I'd come back to the States alone. And so there's a great amount of anxiety. I mean, I was 17, about to turn 18. Um, and, and thinking through just sort of the, all of the, uh, you know, maybe the um, insecurities of the moment and saying, okay, where do I fit? How do I find? Where do I belong? And the first group that I got connected with was a group of international students, mostly those from Indonesia. And so I would go with them on the weekends to their Indonesian church, even though I don't really speak Indonesian. Um, but Indonesian and Malaysian, those are, that's not what you call their languages, but the languages are, are fairly similar. And I do know a little bit of Malay. But anyway, that's beside the point. The point is that was sort of the group that I got connected to, and, and, and uh, we would hang out a little bit. And then I went home for the summer, came back in the fall, and something happened. I auditioned for the chapel praise and worship team, a.k.a. the Cool Kids Club. (laughs) I I am reluctant to admit that the first time I auditioned as a singer, I was cut. But then again, so was Michael Jordan. Um, I, I I did audition for the band, and I made that. And I began playing with the worship team, and then all through that school year was involved in the praise and worship team and made along the way a different set of friends. Now, I didn't intentionally try to jettison or disassociate myself from the Indonesian students that I had befriended. I I had no desire to to say, I don't want to be your friends anymore. But something begins to happen when you find different um, activities and different extracurricular things. Your your networks begin to change or your, your... your spheres begin to change. And so I would, I would see the old friends that I would hang out with and, and say hi, but then I had these other friends that were wearing Abercrombie cargo pants and hemp necklaces and spiky hair and that were the musicians. And, um, and I was now sort of part of that group. And so you're trying to figure out where you belong. And as humorous as that story is, the truth is probably all of you have some measure of relating to an experience or a moment or a circumstance in life where you are internally assessing situations and asking yourself, do I belong here? Who are these people? Are they? Maybe you had that feeling this morning if you're new to New Life downtown and you're walking in, you're like, who are these people? Are these my people? Can I go to church in a school? They have donuts. These might be my people, you know? And, and you're, 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 you're constantly assessing these questions, questions like, Who am I connected to? What am I part of? Do I matter? Now, I know the grammar experts in the congregation are already saying, to whom am I connected? It just does, I know, I know, but I'm just being conversational here. Who am I connected to? Of what am I a part? Um, Just doesn't, yeah, anyway. So we have these questions that we wrestle with and we're saying, what is the, who is the person, who is the leader, what is the, the, the brand or the name or the thing that I sort of say, yes, that is me. And actually, those of you in, in here that engage in marketing and branding, you understand you're doing more than selling a product, you're actually giving people a, a, sense, a chance to express their identity. And so when people buy a product very often, they associate with the product because they're saying that reflects who I am. I'm a Mac guy, you know. I'm not one of those nerdy PC guys, you know, or whatever it is. And you go back and forth with brand identities. And we're looking for things to say, who am I part of? Who am I connected to? What am I part of? Do I matter? Where do I stack up in this organization? So if I am here, am I the best in this group? Am I a leader in this group? Where do I rank? Somewhere beneath the surface, maybe, These questions are going on. And 
the question we're going to wrestle with this morning is, what do you do with that? What do you do with those feelings? Some people think, well, maybe the, the, the response that the gospel has to those feelings is to say, silence those feelings. Some of us maybe think that what the Bible has to say about those impulses is to say, you shouldn't want that. You shouldn't want to have any meaningful connections or any um, um, feelings of belonging or associations, positive feelings of association. You, you really don't need any of that. All you, you, know, you just don't need any of that. Just kind of ignore it. And so we try to ignore it, but over time it sort of keeps bubbling up to the surface again. And we want to know, who is my tribe? What am I connected to? Where do I hitch my wagon? What am I part of? And in response to those questions, do I even matter? I think we've been in the series here on 1 Corinthians. We're just um, two chapters in. Today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to do the first eight chapters, take a break for Lent, do a special series during Lent, and then resume the last eight chapters after Easter. And we talked about how Corinth was this, you know, ancient Corinth, as in, 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 uh, in the age of the Greek Empire, ancient Corinth was this bustling city. It was booming with um, uh, commerce and culture. And then it was destroyed by, uh, when Rome sort of conquered, it, it was kind of, it sort of started deteriorating, diminishing in its influence. And then when there was this guy named Mummius, who, you know, if your mom named you Mummius, you might be a little mad at the world too, but Mummius destroyed Corinth. I mean, just leveled it and it sat, it, it lay in ruins for about a hundred years. And then in 46, the Roman Emperor Julius Caesar said, we need to kind of reestablish the city of Corinth. And so he makes it kind of a new, gives it kind of a new life. And he lets uh, veterans from the Roman military come and help settle the city. And he makes it the capital of this, this Roman province of Archaea. In fact, there's a map here if you can see it. And it's easy to see how Corinth, because it's connected by an isthmus over there to Athens, you can see how it was easy for it to very quickly become again a, a burgeoning city of wealth and commerce and culture. They had these games there, the, the Isthmian games on that isthmus where Corinth is that happened every two years, second only to the Olympic games. It quickly became a happening city. A city also where there was a lot of new money, new wealth. People who had come, who had nothing, who said, we're going to make something of ourselves. It's, it's really, in many ways, an American story. It's an American city, a place where people came and said, we can do something with this. There's potential here. And so businesses were booming and culture was booming. But a big part of the culture of the first century is uh, the, um, the practice of patronage. Patronage works this way. Patronage means there's someone who's wealthy who will underwrite an apprentice and help them to get started in their, either in their business or in their career or in their network. Someone who is really an influential person in the city that would open up the way. Now, honestly, that's not too different from how it works today. If you think about it, think about how universities work. If you say, I've got a degree from X university, you'd say, okay, whoa, that's going to open a certain set of doors. Or maybe if you say, you know what, I studied under so-and-so, or I studied this skill, or I learned this trade, or I'm part of, I'm a realtor, part of this company, someone says, oh, okay. So patronage still works in a, in a similar way. We need a larger name that opens up the doors for us. Now, for teachers in the first century, patronage was particularly important. Because if you were a good teacher, and there were many good Greek uh, uh, philosopher teachers that, that roamed the different cities and taught, some of them were called the sophists, from the word Sophia, wisdom. And the sophists were these teachers that taught wisdom that sounded pleasing. It was crowd-pleasing wisdom. They were masters of rhetoric. They could make a crowd 
just sort of move with them in their emotions. And the Corinthians really liked that. They liked those kinds of speakers. And so a good speaker who really mastered his craft would have a good patron. In other words, he wouldn't have to work. He would have someone who was funding him, much in the same way that when you think of the medieval period where you had patrons of the art. So a good artist would have someone funding their art and they wouldn't have to work. They could just paint. How lovely. But Paul comes into Corinth not with a patron. In fact, Paul comes in with these leather workers, Aquila and Priscilla, and he's learning their trade with them. And he's saying, yeah, I'm kind of a tent maker, this leather worker, I'm I'm with Aquila and Priscilla, but really I'm a preacher of the gospel. And they're like, you're probably not a very good teacher of the gospel. Because if you were, like, you'd have better patronage, but you don't have very good patronage. And Paul comes into this city and into this context and starts to talk to these people about their desire to hitch themselves onto someone important. And so pick it up with me in verse 4. When someone says, I belong to Paul, and someone else says, I belong to Apollos, aren't you acting like people without the Spirit? After all, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Now, Interestingly enough, that phrase is important because we would say, who is Paul or who is Apollos? But the Greek in, in the gender of this, of this pronoun is particular in, in, in wanting to make the point that it's what is. What, what do I amount to? Nothing. What is Paul? What is Apollos? The, the, the point here is dramatic. And then he says, they are servants who helped you to believe. Each one had a role given to them by the Lord. I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. And because of this, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. He's saying, guys, we are not a big deal. But only the one who is any, but the only one who is anything is God who makes it grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together, but each will receive their own reward for their own labor. We are God's co-workers and you are God's field, God's building. The first thing I want to say to us this morning is that leaders are just laborers. Leaders are just laborers. Uh, That's important because I think our day is not too dissimilar from Corinth in the first century. We are enamored by big names. We're enamored by celebrity preachers and celebrity pastors. And so there's a certain kind of spiritual pride, which is not spiritual at all, but a pride falsely placed in spiritual things that says, oh, you know what? I know so-and-so. Oh, I used to go to this, or this person is... And you go on and on down the list and you think, well, this leader, I listen to their podcasts and I read their books and that's, that person is my guy. I'm more of a this person than a that person. And we're always looking for human names to say, you know what, yep, that's me, that's me. Human names to define ourselves by human leaders. And Paul's saying, let's get one thing straight, leaders in the house of God are just laborers. They're not the principal players. They're not the main people. They're, they're, they're just the, the ones who work to build the house. Now, some of you know this, but I I am something of a Bronco fan, (laughs) and uh, I'm very excited. And um, if we put the next picture up there, yeah, so about whenever it was, August, I think, maybe, when training camp was going, have any of you ever been to Bronco's training camp? Do you know, it's an awesome thing, because it's free. And you get to go in and you sit on the side of the field and they're like right there. I mean, right there. <laughs> that was with no Zoom. <laughs> it's right there. And I was there with Sophia and, and Jonas and um, 
there was a time where, at, at the end of practice, where the players would sign autographs. And so I unashamedly sent my kids. <laughs> and, um, and they went, they took my hat, this old school hat, and uh, they got a signature. Now, you can't see it from here, but the, the player's number is a two-digit number, and the last digit is eight. But the first digit is six. Does anyone know who number 68 is? Zane Beatles. That's my man right there. Now, some of you, yeah, exactly. Some of you are saying, uh, Peyton, I know, but who is this Zane you speak of? Now, Zane Beatles is an offensive lineman. He's a great offensive lineman. He's probably one of the best. And without good, a good line, Peyton can't do his thing. Yeah, we get it. But let's be honest. Not one of the Denver Broncos players is going home to their families or, you know, over the holidays or preseason and saying to their friends, you know what, I think this year is going to be special because we've got Zane Beatles. <laughs> I mean, as good as Zane is, nobody is saying, you know what, I have a feeling this is the year because we've got Zane. We've got 68, baby. <laughs> what? I mean, yes, you need a good line. You need all the pieces. But listen, let's, let's not fool ourselves. The only reason we think this year could be special is because we got number 18. That's right, Peyton Manning. <laughs> and I think this is a little bit like what Paul is saying. He's scratching his head and he's saying, Apollos, Paul, God, you, we're linemen. We're like the workers. We don't matter. I mean, yes, 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 we matter. And he goes on. He says, yeah, we got to build carefully and all this stuff. But let's be honest. The thing that makes all of this work is Jesus, not Paul or Apollos. When he says that we are co-workers with God, it's worth kind of dissecting this phrase because my, a lot of my life I heard this verse and I thought, okay, we are co-laborers with God as in we are working with God. But actually several commentaries say that the way the grammar of the Greek is in that sentence, it's more accurately translated, we are fellow laborers, we as in Apollos and I, fellow laborers in the service of God. In other words, not we are co-workers with God, but we are co-workers for God. Saying, Paul is saying, you're, you're on the wrong level of appeal here. Like, you're, you're hooking yourself to the, 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 the lower rungs of the organization. Like, if you want to know where this begins, it's him. We, we're working for him. Leaders are just laborers. And then he goes on in, in verse 10, and he says, listen, we've got to build on the right foundation. I won't read it again, but he's basically saying, look, there is only one foundation, and it's the one that's already been laid, and it is Jesus. Jesus is the foundation. Now, Jason Patterson, you're an architect, you design lots of wonderful houses, you're really smart, and you've got a bright, promising career ahead of you. I don't know anything about architecture, but I would guess that the wider or the taller the building, the deeper and the stronger and the wider the foundation must be. Am I right? You're under pressure, but you're saying yes. Okay, good. He said yes. So you almost need to know what you're building before you lay the foundation, that in some ways the foundation determines whatever potentiality or possibilities for the building. That if you have this kind of a foundation, then your options of a building go to this. But if you have the best foundation, all of a sudden you're saying, wait a minute, we're doing something serious here. Now imagine what Paul's up to when he says, there's only one foundation and it's Jesus. He's saying, look, listen, the thing that God is doing, the thing that God is building is the the greatest foundation itself. It's Jesus himself. Imagine what he could be up to 
with a foundation like that. Imagine what he could be up to with a foundation like that. One of the reasons we have the cross on stage, front and center, one of the reasons we do communion every week, is because we are determined here at New Life to let Jesus Christ be the center of everything that is said and sung and done. That all, at the end of the day, all we are doing is pointing this way and saying, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And so every sermon, the goal with every sermon is to take whatever text we are in and to point to Jesus, to make our way to Jesus, to take whatever theme from life that we're wrestling with and to say, okay, how do we make our way from this situation, from this theme, how do we make our way to Jesus? We had a meeting yesterday with, with our, our, new, our group leaders, and I was talking to them about how we want this to be the, the, the way that it is even in our meal groups. So that when conversations come up and situations come up, the goal is not as group leaders to say, okay, well, I've got to fix you now. Or this is not about accountability. This is not about being a crisis counselor. This is about being a person that says, how can I shine the light on Jesus now? How can I listen to you and then say, okay, let's turn our attention now to Jesus. Because Jesus alone is the foundation. And Paul says, listen, every other worker must build with materials that are appropriate to that foundation. If the foundation is that good, make sure you build on it. So follow it through. If Jesus is the foundation, what are you going to build on then? Self-effort? No. That's like wood and hay and straw. So you're, going to, you're going to say Jesus is the foundation, and then you're going to say, but you ought to try harder. No. I pray that I will never leave you on a Sunday morning with a sermon that says, all right, everybody, I hope you're inspired. Go try harder. I hope I leave you every Sunday morning by God's grace saying, dear God, thank you for Jesus. Dear God, thank you for Jesus. Because that's what we build on. We don't build with materials of hay and straw. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of saying, okay, yeah, yeah, Jesus saved us, but now you're going to have to carry this on in yourself. Jesus, that was a nice starting point, but now it's all about you. And Paul's saying, that's like building with hay and straw. That, that doesn't work. If the foundation is Jesus, let the whole building rest on him. Our New Testament reading was this text of the gardener. And to switch the metaphor a little bit, the gardening metaphor is such a powerful one. Because you get the sense that Jesus is saying, look, for the life, for the situation that looks forgotten, where the person, there's people that want to say, chop it down, it's just taking up space. Look at this person. They've been following Jesus for 10 years and I still don't see any improvement. Be done with them. And Jesus says, no, there's a gardener that comes and says, wait, wait, wait. Let me dig around it. Let me put some fertilizer. Let's give it more time. Because Jesus is this ever patient gardener cultivating the soil. But Jesus is more than that, isn't he? He is the grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies so that it can come again to produce life. Jesus himself is the vine, the true vine. If we are abiding in him, we will bear much fruit. You see, it's not just that Jesus is the foundation as in, yeah, we start with Jesus and then we move on to something else. Jesus is the, is the foundation as in, he's the beginning, the middle, and the end. Everything rests on him. Everything. When we're wrestling with these questions then of who we're part of and what we're connected to, 
the first place we have to go is to say, what does it mean to say, I am resting on the foundation of Jesus? Not first of all on my gifts, not first of all on my calling, not first of all on my purpose or my whatever. That really all of life begins not with answering questions about who you are, but all of life begins by answering questions about who he is. Who is this Jesus? Paul goes on and he says in verse 16, he says, Don't you know that you are God's temple? Now that you, it's worth circling in your Bible and noting that it's in the plural form. And if we had southern translations, we'd say, y'all, don't y'all know that y'all are God's temple? And God's spirit lives in y'all. I can't. If someone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person because God's temple is holy, which is what you are. Think about this word temple for a minute. Let me put the slide up with the pictures here. Of course, these are the temples in ruins, but in Paul's day, these temples were in good condition. Imagine living in a city of about 250,000 people where the most dominant building on the skyline were two temples. The temple of Aphrodite up on that hill called Acrocorinth, the most prominent, the most active one, a temple really built as an altar to, to sex. We know a little bit about that in our culture. And then below it, the temple of Apollo, this idea of Male strength or dominance. And imagine you being a Christian, part of this little church in Corinth. You're maybe one of a hundred people in this church, is our best guess at how big the church in Corinth was in this first century. You're small. You're, you're countercultural. You're like more than on the margins. You're like beyond the margins. You're like on the little tiny, you know, you, you don't matter as Christians. You know, we're, we're so nervous as American Christians of our voice being muted and silenced. And I understand, I understand that. Believe me, I'm not asking to be silenced. But I also want you to know it is not a thing to fear. The church has been here before. And Paul says to this little tiny congregation in a city that is dominated by temples to false gods and false ideals, Paul says, you, all of you together, are God's temple. And they're thinking, what? I mean, there's Apollos and there's Aphrodite. I mean, but those are pretty. I mean, look at those columns. I mean, that, the other one, that's on like a mountain. Like, we, our little house group, our little, I mean, we meet next door at the home of this guy, Crispus, who used to be the leader of the synagogue. I mean, we, he's got a nice porch and all, but I wouldn't say we're a temple. Are we really part of something that's significant, that special? I mean, it's kind of, I I don't know, that's sort of, Paul says, you are God's temple. This, earlier this week, I was in Durham, England for school, and in Durham there is a cathedral, Um, it's called Durham Cathedral, and um, it's a, it's a beautiful cathedral that, that the um, main pieces of it go all the way back to the 1090s. 1090s, 11th century people. I know they laugh at Americans and they're like, yeah, the oldest house in our city is like 1860, 18. They're like, (laughs) that's the modern wing of the cathedral or whatever, you know. (laughs) But this is, this is, and and it's, it's Norman architecture and go to the next slide here, the picture, you can see these columns. I mean, I wish you could see a little better, but 
the, the braided columns and then the, um, what's the word for it? Yeah, it's not quite a dome, it's a, there's this other word for it, but the thing that makes it special is it was the largest of its kind when it was built, stone. And it's, it largely stayed intact. Vaulted, stone vaulted ceiling. The oldest surviving building with a stone vaulted ceiling of such a large scale. It's amazing. And you walk in it and you feel like you've just gotten enveloped by something. You've become really small, yeah. Like all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're in it. And I was visiting with um, an American family who was doing postgraduate work there, and the, the husband is, and, and they had me over for a meal, very kind. I don't really know them, but they're just very hospitable. It's the beauty of the church. And the wife was saying to me, she said, I, I, I always, whenever I walk to the cathedral, I always want to give the building a hug. <laughs> I, I looked at her and said, tell me more, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and she said, you know, to me, a building like this was built to show how high and how deep and how wide is the love of God. And a building like this was, sort of gives you the feeling when you're in it that you're being engulfed by God and by his love, but embraced by him. And she said, I, I, I want to sort of hug it back, you know. And I thought that was beautiful. Now if I said to you, church, New Life Downtown, that you are more beautiful than this cathedral, what would you say? And if I said to you that what is at work in your life is more stunning than the Norman architecture that goes back to the 1090s, but goes back to before the foundation of the world when the Lamb of God was slain, what if I said to you that you are something that God has been working on from before time began? What if I said to you that you are more beautiful, more sacred, more holy than the most gorgeous cathedral in the world. You'd say, Glenn, I, I, really? I mean, we meet in a school, you know? It's like chairs that are creaky. <laughs> no, 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 not, 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 not this. I, I mean you, together you. That every time the church of New Life Downtown, the congregation gathers together, something special happens. Something mystical, something beyond what we can measure or, 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 or get our brain around. Something special happens, something spiritual. This is why Paul says, listen, are you still so unspiritual that you're hanging on to Paul and Apollos? Listen, if you were people of the Spirit, you would understand that when the Spirit indwells you as the church together, that's far more beautiful than anything you could have imagined. It's far more meaningful than any other name and any other cause and any other purpose and anything else that you could have been trying to connect yourself to. See, Jesus is the foundation, but we are God's dwelling place. We are God's dwelling place. The very place where God himself inhabits. But not, not in that sort of Western sense of saying, you, you, Jack, you, Susie, you are the temple. Not in that individualistic, vaguely spiritualistic sense, but you all together. All of you together. When you gather together here, when you begin to pray, when you begin to lift up the name of Jesus, when you begin to open the scriptures, all of a sudden something special happens. Verse 21, Paul says, so then no one should brag about human beings. Like, yeah, that does seem really silly, doesn't it? 
It's like, I'm, I'm kind of bragging about the wrong thing. And he says, everything belongs to you. Everything belongs to you. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, life, death, things in the present, things in the future. Everything belongs to you. But before you stop there and put the period in the sentence there and say, it belongs to me. That's right, because I am the end of all things. Paul says, no, 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 it doesn't stop with you. It comes through you. Everything belongs to you, but you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. See, here's where all of this comes together. All of the little things we've been trying to attach ourselves to, Paul is saying, you know what? It's better than that. It's better than that. Someone says, well, I, thought, I like being a Christian because I get to be part of a really influential social action group in the, in the country. Huh? It's better than that. I like going to church because they have a really cool praise and worship band. and I, I, well, It's better than that. I like my pastor because this is it's better. It's much better than that. So I, I really like being part of this because, you know, we serve the city and we've got missionaries. And I, listen, listen, listen. Yeah, yeah, great, great. It's better than that. What do you mean? You're part of what God is doing and has been doing since time began. God has been forming a people for himself calling together a family. And you're part of that. All of this, things in the present, things in the future, all of it belongs to you. Why? Because you belong to Christ. This reminds me of what Jesus said. He said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek Jesus and all of these other things. Yes, It is wonderful to have this kind of meaning and this kind of relationship. All of those things are wonderful, but they get added on because you belong to Christ. What does this mean? It means that you matter. It means that you belong here. It means that your place in the cosmos is in the arms of Father God. It means that sense of belonging you've been looking for is right here in the family of God. It means that purpose that you've been aching to find, that thing that is larger than you, that makes you want to wake up every morning and say, yes, God, is not simply a job that is fulfilling, but is a God who breathes in you through that job. Can I say that Part of our problem is we confuse things that are legitimate with things that are ultimate. It is legitimate to want to enjoy what you do for a living, but it is not ultimate. And when you are connected to Christ, when you say, I belong to Christ, all of a sudden you have found what is ultimate. And then you can go back to all those legitimate things of wanting to have the right job and the right friendships and the right networks and all of those things all of a sudden become okay and become enjoyable and become gifts in this life because you've found what is really ultimate. See, the gospel doesn't say, don't want that, don't seek that, don't ask for that. The gospel isn't slapping our wrists for aching for meaning. The gospel isn't rebuking us for asking to belong. The gospel says, let me show you the ultimate place you belong. Here, in this great house that God has been building. 
this great home in which God himself dwells. God wants to be at home in us, in our lives together. That is what gives your life meaning and significance and hope and belonging. And then from that, everything else flows as a gift. Some of you are here this morning, and the truth is you've you've never really known that that was possible. You've just thought that all there really is in life is having the right relationships and having the right careers, and I hope that connecting myself to his name or her name is is, is what's going to be the game changer. I hope if I find the right company or take the right vacations or If I could reach this status. And Jesus has news for you this morning. It's actually much better than that. Life is much better than that. Life is much better than saying, I need to find meaning here, 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 here. That you can find yourself part of a kingdom work that is in the business of rescuing lives, bringing hope, Speaking life. Others of you, you you are a Christian, you believe in Jesus, but you never knew that faith in Christ was the kind of foundation that was meant to set the course for the whole building. You kind of thought, yeah, I say yes to Jesus and then I'll take it from here, right? I'll just try to do a good job and be a good person and try my best and hope to have a meaningful and happy life. And the good news for you this morning is that it's, it's better than that. It's better than that. Jesus is offering you something radically new. He's saying, you want to be part of what I'm up to? I'm the builder of a house that will not be destroyed. And that building is actually the house in which I dwell. You want to be part of something bigger than yourself? Be part of the people of God. There's this great lie in our, in our day that says, if you want to find meaning, you need to go out there and find yourself. The gospel says the opposite. The gospel says, uh, this is not about going off on a trail in the wilderness to go find yourself. This is about Jesus finding you and you being willing to lose yourself. This is about you saying, I, I don't have it in me to bring meaning to my own life. I don't have it in me to make myself matter. But you see, Jesus found me. And isn't that Paul's story? This guy who thought that there was meaning in being the best religious scholar of his day. This guy who thought there was meaning in being so zealous for God and persecuting all the heretics. Aha! This guy who all of a sudden was literally knocked off of his horse by a blinding light in the desert. Jesus says, Paul, it's better than that. It's better than you trying to do this on your own. It's better than you trying to make your life matter. It's better than you trying to earn enough points and credits and impress this imaginary. It's better than that, Saul. I've got something better than that. And Paul learns to say, if I have Jesus, I have everything. And he's trying to get this young Corinthian church living in a worldly, wealthy city. He's trying to get it through their heads. Guys, Stop looking for the celebrity preachers and the big-name churches. and the, 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 there, there isn't that, first of all, in, in his day. We're all just laborers. And he's saying, if you have Christ, you have it all. It's better than that. 